Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. Welcome back to Satellite and the final installment of our three-part series orbiting how to make an American sun, currently performing at Imago Theater and running through June 25th. Today, I am joined by New York-based director Ben Viegas-Randall. Before relocating to New York City, he spent 15 years in San Francisco developing original plays and musicals, directing West Coast and regional premieres, and reimagining classics. We're delighted to have uh, this show and this production to have been his reason to visit Portland for the first time. Ben, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you finding Portland? Is this, this is your first visit, yes? It is my first visit. I'm loving it so far. It's been really, uh, I mean, first of all, to have a break from New York City for five weeks has been lovely, because as much as you love can love New York City, uh, Portland is a lovely change of pace. S- s- um, slower, I assume. Uh, quite a bit slower. <laughs> I think as I, was, I was saying as I was uh, uh, annoyed at my Lyft driver just now. <laughs> right, right. Why aren't you honking more? I don't exactly. understand. More I, weaving. I could run faster than this. <laughs> Um, you probably could. We're very polite drivers in Portland. Extremely. I, I, I think it's it's so strange, even when I'm jaywalking at, at anywhere, any place, no matter how busy the street is, the cars will just stop. Yeah. It, I, I, it, it floors me every time. I'm like, you very much have the right of way, and I was going to wait for all of you to go. Yeah. And they'll stop. I'm like, this is a very polite town. Yeah. It, it causes me some anxiety because I'm like... You could have just gone, and then I could have leisurely walked across exactly. the street. But now you're like yes. sitting there in your car, yes. like with your wife in labor, waiting for me to like walk my dog who's smelling a flower across the street. Yeah. Yes, and the, and the the California people pleaser in me, like also is like always has to be like, thank you, thank you, like wave, like like I'm so appreciative that they did that, even though they didn't really have to do that. They didn't have to, and now you're stuck having to thank them and rush. Uh, <laughs> so you're here working on. Um, Christopher Oscar Pena's play, How to Make an American Son. Now you, I noticed as I was like reading through your materials, your your bio and so forth, you have worked with two out of three of the featured playwrights on our season. So you have, or whether with, you've worked mm-hmm. on material from. So there was um, a Christopher Diaz piece that you um, worked on and then uh, like a film adaptation of a Lauren Yee script. Uh, so you're, Collecting them all. Exactly. Like, we're so happy to complete your Pokemon set. Um, (laughs) I don't know anything about Pokemon. I hope that wasn't. I don't either. I hope that wasn't offensive. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about those those two pieces. Oh, yeah. uh, The Chris Diaz was a... Uh, stage reading actually I did I think maybe like 10 years ago or so and it's really funny because uh, although I worked with Chris uh, on the stage reading uh, I hadn't seen him since then so I ran into him right when I arrived in Portland he had just completed the writers workshop with him and Chris and um, we got to meet in the lobby and I 
I think I made him feel bad because he didn't remember at all. He was like, oh, and, to- and I totally reminded him. He was like, oh, we had such a good time that weekend. And I'm like, it's okay. It's- it was 10 years ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But it was a um, stage reading of a really fantastic play of his called Hashtag the Revolution. Uh, uh, it's just uh, uh, four femme characters and the teenagers who are staging a revolution. I think at the time it was like, all on YouTube. Now that probably would be like a TikTok kind of thing. I'm not sure. I think he actually should update it and, uh, and it's, it should happen because I don't I don't actually know if it's got a production yet, but um, I love that play. And so we we're working on that about 10 years ago. And um, then Lauren Yee, I know Lauren, fr- um, I didn't know her from the Bay Area, but we're both from the Bay Area. And I met her when I was, um, when I moved to New York and we connected out there because of our barrier roots. And then uh, during the pandemic, I worked on uh, a adaptation of her play Hookman for the Atlantic Training Company. And uh, it was the pandemic. And so everything was virtual and all that fun stuff. And because this was going to be an edited project, I thought, well, why make this like a a, a Zoom play? Because those are so abysmal. Sorry. Uh, and I thought, why don't we just make a film? And we pretty much staged it virtual or we shot it virtually. So it's like directing people over Zoom how to be shooting off their iPhone camera and then uploading to a server and then checking it like an hour later. And like, you know, so that was fun. That was, the, I, I say euphemistically, because that was a, a, a journey. But it, it worked perfectly with that play because that's like a slasher comedy. So at least had the right, you know, kind of, I think, kind of slapstick, um, um, a, a lo-fi kind of vibe. So, you know, even when it, it felt like it kind of played like a student film, which it was. And so that was really fun. And I was really excited to work on that play because I love Lauren. And that was a really fun, uh, it's a really fun play. And really, uh, I thought it was unique enough that it would at least work in that genre in a, in a kind of exciting way. And some of it, you know, I was quite proud of. Some of it turned out really well. Some parts I was like, okay, that looks like we shot that remotely. You know, <laughs> like I'd love to shoot that again, but I wasn't in the room. You know, so things like that. That's just the nature of the pandemic work we made. But it was um, it was still really fun to work on and really challenging. Yeah, we, we got bizarre, like resourceful. We got resourceful and we did what we needed to do to, um, to stay sane. Absolutely. <laughs> that part. Um, so I pulled this little snippet, um, from your website yesterday that I'm going to read, uh, Ben creates from his experience as a queer Latine son of an immigrant, transforming otherness into a window to view society with empathy, rage, celebration, and connection. In short, he tells stories of individuals battling for existence, searching for community, um, this is lovely, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I, it uh, caught my eye because there are so many things that pop out to me uh, that I think Christopher Pena would say mm. about himself and his play. Uh, so I'm curious. Just I wanted to like recall those um, those words to mind and see if you could just really riff a little bit about how you're bringing those ideas and those identities to uh, how to make an American son. Firstly, when I first read Chris's play, I was so thrown by the fact that it was like, it was playing like my life, even though it's the story of his life. I thought this surely is actually my life. We both grew up in California, uh, both sons of immigrants, both queer. Uh, I literally saw that Madonna concert that Orlando buys tickets to and gets in trouble for. (laughs) 
So I literally, it was really easy to like to do the research and like place the play and like when it happened. I'm like, I know because she would have come to San Jose in September of 2001, and like it's really quite embarrassing. Like the overlap was so uh, was so striking. So the uh, that kind of like access point for me was so uh, 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 easy, um, and also I think all the themes of the play and the the. Um, the assimilation, the the second generation uh, immigrant, the um, the kind of the it's interesting when you're reading back my little like artistic blurb, which those are so strange to write about yourself. And I was thinking, I was struck by the otherness thing because that is that's something that in the play I think Orlando deals with, even if it's it's kind of a, it's discussed in the play in a, in a lot of different ways. But the the way in which he you could even if he has money and he has class in the play and he he uh, feels he has access to all of these um, privileges, you can tell that he still always kind of feels outside. And he feels that he is an other in almost, in almost every room that he's in, either because he's the queer person in that family, uh, whether he is the, you know, the um, immigrant at school, whether he's, he's not the pretty tall blonde boy, you know, the, there's always that otherness. And so it, there's really this sense of um, always standing outside of everyone else and what, what they're doing in their group. And so that perspective to me was really how I felt growing up a lot. So it was really not hard for me to really understand Orlando's journey and what Chris was talking about. In one of our early conversations about the show, you talked about this idea of assimilation um, as like this lens through, under, like to understand American Son. Just tell me more about like what assimilation means to you and like where it shows up in the play. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's one story that Orlando tells in the story, in the play, about uh, learning English when he was you know, eight years old, I think he says. Uh, and at first he learned English from ESL classes, uh, English as a second language in school. And he spoke with a thick accent. And um, it's fascinating because when we were discussing the play and like table work in the first few days of rehearsal, so many people in the cast had an experience and actually on the design team and writing team, of course, uh, had an experience with ESL and there were all these different relationships to it. I actually recall when I was about eight years old, I remember watching the kids um, being taken out of class to go to ESL. We must have been doing like English or grammar, whatever they called it, you know, in third grade and watching the kids um, go out to ESL class. And I was frozen in fear, wondering if someone was going to know that I spent the weekend with my grandparents where they were speaking Spanish all the time. And like, what would they do if they found out what I'd be taken out to? I mean, it's completely illogical, but I remember just the shame around the kids being taken out of class. It felt like, you know, they must be doing something wrong, even though, of course, that's not what it was. But that's just, you know, kind of like the human nature of wanting to be part of a group. It's just, you know, we're tribal uh, creatures. We want to be accepted and part of a group for survival. So it feels, uh, it felt so shameful for this kid to be taken out of class. And I remember, uh, being so afraid and other people in the cast uh, were saying, you know, they remember that too, or they were those kids, or they also thought that about the kids. It was just really fascinating um, that um, uh, that nature of like the kind of the immigrant experience. Um, and I didn't have the same experience as Chris in that I don't speak Spanish, um, but I actually don't because of assimilation and, and the kind of the generational differences because um, my grandparents uh, immigrated to the country. They spoke Spanish. Uh, all the time, all around me. And so I know bits and f- pieces and phrases and I can under- understand lots. And 
my father could understand them, but I almost never heard him speak Spanish. Um, and he passed away a few years ago. And the last time I actually hung out with him and took him to lunch, he actually spoke to the server in Spanish. And I actually said to him, I've never heard you speak Spanish before. And it was kind of funny because he's like a terrible accent too. But, but I knew he understood everything because, uh, you know, he grew up around it. And so when uh, it was time to take a language and like, you know, whatever, sixth or seventh grade, whatever that is, I had this really strange... Um, I've never admitted this kind of like publicly on like a podcast like this, but I had really deep issues with shame kind of, you know, kind of extending from that ESL story, uh, growing up in San Diego, uh, you know, where, especially in the nineties and probably, you know, to this day, because of Trump and such, you know, Mexican is a dirty word. And I felt a lot of shame around, around having uh, a Spanish speaking family. And so I didn't take Spanish though. So everyone around me and all of my white friends and everyone was taking Spanish in sixth and seventh grade into high school. And I took French because also my grandmother also spoke French. And so it was my little justification of like, Oh, I'm, I could still like speak with her and I love her so much. And I still, I'm not like denying my family, you know, like it was such a strange little thing, you know, for like an 11 or 12 year old to, to kind of justify or compartmentalize in their brain. And it's something that to this day I I regret so deeply and I'm so angry that like that poor little boy had felt that way because I would kill, I would give anything now for my grandparents who are you know, no longer with us to be able to sit and talk Spanish with in Spanish with them. Because now I'm like, you know, teaching myself as an adult because I can understand it, but I can't speak it very well. And it's, it's, a, it's a bummer that I couldn't sit there and, you know, just chat with them and also like learn their accent, you know, kind of organically, that'd be super fun. And like, you know, so it's, so although I don't have the same experience say as either Chris or Orlando in the play, it's so fascinating. All the themes that he, he, he digs up in the way in which it, they resonate through so many different, you know, immigrant experiences. I hear this a lot, actually, right? Like you think about what um, immigrant parents like name their kids and like often it's sort of very, quote unquote, American names um, and like like not wanting to speak Spanish in the household. Right. Uh, and then I think about the character of or Orlando when he has that conversation with with Raphael about um sort of really explicitly like that's where it's most explicit in the play like you come here you come to america for a better life and then like but you want to hold on to your way of doing things or speak your like speak your language like you need to learn the rules here that there's um it's actually like the pressure we see in this play and i think we don't talk about a lot on assimilation is actually from other um, like Latine folks. Absolutely. There's, there's definitely a sense among, I, I can only speak to the Latine community, but there's definitely a sense of, uh, a, of we did it better. That group isn't doing it right. Um, this is the way you have to do this. And there's so much pressure. It's, indeed, it's even why like as a voting block, they don't, they don't vote. Uh, they vote regionally, you know, the, the kind of the, what they call the Hispanic vote will like regionally vote similarly, but not like nationally because you're getting pockets of different cultures. And they sometimes honestly like are, almost pitted against each other. Even the the thing I was saying a minute ago about the kind of Mexican being a dirty word, what's fascinating about that is that that is, uh, it, it is still true and that even also even comes from like other members of the Latin community. I was even thinking of like a friend of mine who is Dominican and she is, uh, started dating a Mexican and her mother literally said to her like, 
well, you, don't leave him alone in the house. He's going to rob you. And she was like, are you kidding me? Like it's, and it's, this is, you know, this was like two months ago and it's, it, it, that is, it's definitely still a thing. The kind of just the, the, um, the, that kind of the hierarchical kind of, um, you know, it's really, it's sadly, it's, you know, you could say it's like, you know, her people hurt. You could see the, the trauma that's passed around. You could say it's like animal, animal farm and, you know, like all, all pigs are, all animals are equal except some animals are more equal than others. All that kind of like we just pass along the, the, the treatment of that we are, we are given and give it to another group. It's, it's just human nature and it's super tragic. Um, but it's absolutely reflected, I think, in certainly the Latin aid community. Um, and from what I hear in other immigrant communities uh, as well. I guess I will go back to, um, I know that you are a director and a designer, mm-hmm. and you direct a, a wide variety of kinds of work, musicals, a lot of new work, um, and pieces that are like not uh, kitchen table realism, yeah. right? That like very much, much all exist in a very unique world of the playwrights creating. Um, I mean, how to make an American son leans more into realism, but I'm just curious about like you and your process, how you get inside the world of a play and figure out how it should look, how it should feel, how you bring a unique, um, how you play, learn and play by the unique um, rules of each world. Yeah, it's interesting you say that how to make an American son is is more the naturalistic realm because it is. However. This production really isn't, and that was even something that Chris uh, was quite intentional on. I think when he wanted me to do it, because he knows that I do so many plays that are not so naturalistic or kitchen sink, and nothing wrong with those. But uh, he knows that I have a passion for trying to figure out uh, how to do those kind of plays in in, uh, in situations where you can't actually, because you know all the different locations we go to in this play would not be possible in this theater on this budget, et cetera. So it's really about trying to figure out what is the play saying beyond just the locations and the settings. Um, and I have a couple ways I approach every play, no matter how naturalistic or not. And um, first, this kind of sounds obvious, but I think one of the first things I try to do is I kind of to get the kind of politic of the play, to figure out who is the individual and what are they kind of up against? What's the resistance in the play kind of in a macro sense, not on a personal uh, character to character basis, but kind of that person against the world kind of feeling? Because um, that's usually what I what I identify as like that person trying to find community. Because usually they're trying to kind of take on the world and find someone else who's going to do it with them. That's usually what's happening in almost every play. But the other thing I look for that really helps me um, from a design standpoint, but also a staging standpoint, is I something called the physical subtext, what I call the physical subtext, where that is, if I turn the play on mute, what is going on? Am I gonna, what am I seeing happen? And that uh, can sometimes be really obvious or take me forever to figure out. And um, that usually leads me to be like, uh, what is the kind of overarching metaphor for this? But it's more than just a design metaphor because I think designers often think that way. They're like, how would I express all of this play in an image um, or an image that kind of evolves? But I also, have to, but I have to think of it as the physical subtext because it's like, what is happening movement-wise? How are the characters moving through the world? Again, it seems really obvious, but like it's it, it kind of isn't, and it takes some as a really hard. Uh, uh, Sometimes it takes a really long time to figure out, you know, what this is, and it actually took me a minute for how to make an American Son, actually. Um, but I'm pretty excited about what we're doing, and I think that it does kind of capture the 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 energy and the spirit of the of uh, the U.S. in circa 2000, um, and the kind of the um, hope and the hubris that Americans had at that time. The 
dot-com, pre-dot-com bubble burst kind of spirit of the economy booming and all of that, that hubris affecting or being kind of a metaphor for Orlando and Mondo and the, their blind spots and their naivete and the lessons they have to learn in the play. Um, is, is there an overarching metaphor? <laughs> I was going to say, well, should I just give this away? Yeah. Um, <laughs> for, uh, it sounds, uh, uh, for me, it was the quality, the physical subjects of this play was what Mondo calls, or he refers to many times in the play as trust the system is one of the, one of the, the, uh, the uh, kind of like the themes of the play. And for me, the quality of the movement was the characters kind of bouncing around in this system almost like you could say like you know a hamster on a hamster wheel kind of feeling or like a pinball machine um and they're just and no matter what they do and how much they uh, achieve and how much they buy or what their uh um what material possession they own it's it's nothing's changing their circumstances they're just kind of bouncing around this little pinball machine because the image i had for the uh hope and the hubris of that time was the iMac Generation 3 personal computer, uh, which I think was like the first computer that had all the guts in one thing as opposed to like the, the monitor and the thing also down below. It was in one one like monitor that had a clear plastic casing that you could see all the gears inside. And I thought it's as if they're stuck inside this iMac and they're just bouncing around this little iMac and you're just watching the gears turning, you're watching them all uh, um, tr- you know, trying to change their lot in life, but nothing is changing because they're just gonna be stuck inside this system until they decide not to be. That was the, the physical subtext for me and how I that will then allow me to jump around all these different locations from a parking lot to inside a car to a house to office park, all these different locations within you know two seconds. I like that. Did you have one of those computers? I did not. No, we couldn't afford one. Ah. <laughs> I wanted one. I think friends of mine did, and I was really, I coveted it. Okay. Last question. What do you hope that the audience will be thinking about, keep thinking about when when they leave? Oh, there are so many rich themes that Chris is playing with in the play, whether it be uh, the immigrant experience, whether it be assimilation, whether it be the the, the father-son dynamic, whether it be trying to find your place in the world. Are there, are there places that everyone, even if you are not an immigrant or you are not queer or, you know, th- that you feel that sense of the hierarchy, the power, the power hierarchy of life. And like, you know, do you feel like you, you, what you have to do to attain a certain status? And, and then frankly, do you look down on others and feel like that feel like that you have um, uh, uh, more status than them? And and then uh, uh, and are you aware of that kind of all system at play? I mean, he's dealing with all of these things at once, and just this one beautiful story of this uh, one father and son. I feel like there's so many access points for everyone to either see themselves or at least have their life experiences reflected in the play, even if you are not like me and have a biography so similar to Chris and Orlando. Uh, I think there's so many themes to kind of pick up on. All right. Well, thank you for your time. And I hope Portland continues to show you pleasant weather. I I hope so, too. It's been beautiful. Yeah, it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good while you've been here. So are you here? um, You leaving right after opening? I am. So two more weeks. We open two weeks from I shouldn't say that because this will air later, right? Yeah, but that's okay. I'm here until the day after opening. Yeah, wonderful. (laughs) Um, Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
thanks so much to Ben Viegas Randall. His beautiful work on How to Make an American Son can be seen at Imago Theater through June 25th. For tickets and information, visit profiletheater.org. This episode was produced by me, Tamara Carroll, and our line producer is Jamie M. Ray. Editing and sound engineering by Robert A.K. Gonyo. Special thanks to Sam Mowry and the Willamette Radio Workshop. We exist on the traditional lands of the Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their home along the Willamette and Columbia rivers. We honor the ancestors of this place and acknowledge that we are here now because of the sacrifices forced upon them. We honor their descendants who live among us. 